I'm back. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here at the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, from the North Georgia mountains to the Florida line, from the Chattahoochee to the Atlantic. It is me back. Happy New Year to you. It's kind of weird to come back to work today. I was I was had to take my wife to get her oil changed this morning. I, not well, not her oil change. <laughs> the car's oil changed, and there was nobody on the road. I was like, man, I'm one of those suckers who came back the day after the first instead of taking Thursday and Friday off. But I am. I am here. Thanks to Chris Burns for filling in while I. I was gone. I was telling him this morning, telling Charlie, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of jealous to come back. People are going to be calling saying, hey, we like that guy better. <laughs> Quick check of the radar for you around the state. We've got a lot of a lot of rain moving in. Uh, still heavy rain in Rome and Dalton uh, over towards Clarksville. You're going to get some more rain. Athens as well. Got another band uh, here in Macon. We've got more rain moving in uh, momentarily. It's uh, headed down from Forsyth. So and then down in South Georgia, you got a lot of rain. Uh, Vidalia, Valdosta, you're mostly in the clear right now, but you're going to get some as well uh, as all this this storm system comes in. I won't keep checking radar for you but uh just as we start the show we got rain around the state now the phone number we, we actually were fully operational uh back from the new year we do have phones if you want to call in 877-97-ERIC 877-973-7425 and we got a ton of stuff to talk about i've been making a list for the last two weeks uh, of stuff that I wanted to talk about. Uh, it won't be repetitive too much from when Chris was filling in, but, you know, the big story of the morning, believe it or not, people are still talking about this story from over the weekend. And it's kind of a, a ridiculous encapsulation of every other story that we will probably talk about today. And we begin, of course, with Pope Slap, Pope Gate, uh, the Pope. Uh, some, some woman, I, I'm assuming by now everyone has seen the video, even my kid has seen the video, uh, a, a woman grabbed the Pope by his hand. Uh, he, he winced. He was clearly in pain and she jerked him towards her and he slaps her hand and pulls his hand away. Well, and then he apologized and said women shouldn't be hit. And it's become this media sensation, uh, where you have CNN, uh, running a story. Basically the Pope's a hypocrite that he hits a woman and then says violence against women is wrong. That that's CNN story on their website. Uh, Reuters as well. Uh, Pope hits woman. He, y'all, he's an 83 year old man. Whether listen, I, I'm 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 Presbyterian. I I I put the fun and fundamentalism for when it comes to Calvinism. The the Pope grabbed his hand is grabbed by this woman. He did not consent. She yanks him towards her. He's 83. She nearly throws him off balance, and the media is upset that the Pope slapped her hand away. He tried. He yanked his hand back, and she wouldn't let go. He had to pop her hand. And when you look at all of the stories uh, that we're probably going to be dealing with today, well, I mean, there are a few. We'll get into the UGA, uh, Baylor game here, and and we got LSU and and Clemson. The number of jokes. Can someone please come up with a joke other than, I bet the Tigers are going to win that game? It's like the people on the 31st saying, I'm going to sleep till the new year. (laughs) In any event. So the media blows up what is, let's just admit, a stupid story and turns it into some sort of attack on the Pope when it's the Pope himself who was actually attacked by this woman. An 83-year-old man pulled off balance by a younger woman who wouldn't let go of his hand. And of course he responds, I would too. I'm totally team Pope on this and I ain't team Pope. But compare this now. To what happened in Iraq, in Iraq, we have uh, Iranian forces 
organizing protests at the American embassy in Iraq. And what is the natural immediate reaction of members of the media? Oh, 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 if, if only he hadn't cut the Iran deal, this would not be happening if he had stuck with Barack Obama's Iran deal. Or uh, my personal favorite was, ah, this is Trump's Benghazi. In fact, so there's a left-wing group called, uh, what is it, Vote Vets, I think is the left-wing group. They rushed, as, as this was happening, now for those of you who don't know, um, Iranian protesters showed up and um, they showed up at the embassy. They were protesting uh, American presence in the Middle East. In particular, they were protesting uh, the American presence in Iraq. They want the Americans gone. They were clearly organized by Iranians. This comes on the heels of an Iranian attack on American positions in northern Iraq. And this Vote Vets group immediately runs out as these protesters are trying to storm the gates of the American embassy. And and what does the group say? This is your Benghazi now, Mr. President ridiculing him for saying Hillary Clinton needed to be held accountable for Benghazi. Well, it wound up not um, because contrary to the Obama administration, the Trump administration was not asleep at the wheel on this. Here's Secretary of State Mike Pompeo talking about holding Iran accountable. You saw the president say today, uh, we will continue to hold the Islamic Republic of Iran accountable uh, wherever we find their malign activity, and we'll make sure we have the resources to do so. I'll leave to the Department of Defense to talk about specifics, but make no mistake about what the guidance President Trump has given to both the State Department and the Department of Defense. It's to make sure that we have all that we need to perform the missions. All that they need to perform their missions, here's Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. The thing we have to focus on here is beyond just the politics, because I think especially in an election year, you can expect both sides to use anything they can to damage the other side. But President Trump has been very firm in defending American interests, putting American interests first, which I strongly endorse, because that's that's why I say we should withdraw our troops. But he will defend us no matter what, and he's not going to allow a situation, especially like what happened in Benghazi, to where American personnel were killed because of the slowness of the defense response. And that's yeah. not going to happen here. What, what is Iran trying to get out of this? Well, the, the big problem with this, and a lot of people say, hey, the maximum pressure campaign is succeeding. Well, the only thing it's succeeding in doing is making Iran more provocative and making them move towards more risky situations. If- can I just, I, I, I need to pause this. Can I just say I love this guy's accent as someone from the South, I can say. I love this guy's accent. You can tell that this guy, he could like get in a pickup truck with a couple of guns and a, and a, and a cooler full of beer and he and his buddies could take out the Taliban. Let's just, I'm sorry. We should continue. Really do want to negotiate a better deal to end that situation here. We have to be willing that for Iran to come out with something like a win. Otherwise, you won't have any negotiations, and these kinds of things are going to continue on. And again, that's just not in our interest to do that. Wait, what does that mean? Uh, we need for Iran to be able to come out with a win. Right. If you're going to negotiate something, both sides have to get something that they want. And that means that we can't just say everything that we want is going to happen. You're just going to do it because they're just not going to operate that way. No one will do that. So we have to say, what are your requirements and what are your needs? And we have to give them something because look, the honest, if they don't get anything that's a win, what is their motivation to do what we want them to do? We're going to send over the troops. We're going to take care of the situation. Oh, the president of the United States is not going to let a Benghazi happen on his watch. And I I do find it very, very notable. I think it is instructive. Uh, It is a very instructive moment that 
the initial reaction, not just from, and listen, I, I, I realize we, we have a lot of fun saying uh, the media and the Democrats, but I repeat myself. Um, I do want to distinguish here. I very much want to distinguish because this actually is the media here and it's, it is partisan progressive activists. It is not the Democrats. We'll, we'll get into the dynamic at play here. The New York times of all things actually has a very good story out today that we should consider here. Uh, but this is the media. It is not, it is not elected Democrats and we need to distinguish that because it is very instructive that it's the media and not elected Democrats that immediately rush to Benghazi. Benghazi. This is Donald Trump's Benghazi. There was a near, and I I don't say this lightly, and I need you to understand that. I don't like to say this, but it is, it was almost uh, celebratory. There, There was a level of reveling in the fact that Donald Trump was going to have his Benghazi moment. There were media outlets. There were partisan progressive activists. There were not elected Democrats doing this. There were partisan progressive activists. You had one guy, he writes for The Guardian, The Huffington Post, a couple of left-wing sites. He's out there cheering on Iran's leaders saying that they will fight back against the United States. You have Ben Rhodes, uh, Obama's uh, creative writing director who advised him on national security, saying that had he stuck with the Iran deal, this wouldn't have happened. You know, Iran is able to do what they're doing because the Obama administration poured a bunch of money into Iran so they could build up these militia groups in the Middle East uh, that are funded by Iran. Iran could not have done what it did over the weekend but for the Obama administration's Iran deal. And there are Democrats who say, but they didn't do this when the Iran deal was going on clearly. Yeah, but they were continuing to build up their nuclear presence, which they're continuing to do. They were shifting funding around and, and uh, dodging and distracting. And part of the problem here is that the media has not been willing to be honest about the situation. They were so in on the, the Obama administration's agenda that they could not be honest about what Iran was actually doing. And now they're blaming Donald Trump for the Iran issues. Y'all, listen, I realize we, we've reached a moment of, of where, where the press has become highly partisan. I realize we've reached a moment where the press uh, is anything and everything to do with Donald Trump is bad. And, and I, I want to spend a little bit of time on this uh, here in a few minutes. When we come back, uh, I'll spend a, a few minutes on it. And, and I, I want to shed some light on this. But what, I, what I'm really kind of offended by, and I, I suspect all of you are as well, is there is in the press now a giddiness over anything that happens to President Trump uh, that is not good. And if it happens badly to the United States, if something bad happens to the United States, the same thing is at play in much of the press. They're giddy at it because of the political implications against the president. They are essentially rooting against the success of the United States, knowing that that will help or that will hurt the president. Look at all of the economic numbers that came out before we left for Christmas break. Record high employment, record low unemployment, uh, record high stock market. 
In fact, oh, what, the day after Christmas, uh, the, the NASDAQ hit a record high. And you hear these conversations increasingly in the press that, oh, this is, this is bad for us. We, we, we need the stock market to crater. We, we need something bad to happen on the, on the foreign policy front. We need chaos in Afghanistan and Iraq to win. You have members of the media and partisan progressive activists, many of them the same, and they are giddy at anything that is bad because they think it can hurt Donald Trump. Now, one of the underlying issues that you need to understand here is that this is an admission against interest that what you see online is not necessarily reflective offline. Well, what do I mean by that? If you go online and you look at a lot of reporters on social media, interact with them on Twitter, there is a prevailing sentiment out there that uh, the president is toast, that it doesn't matter what the president does come 2020, the president is not going to win re-election. And I've got to tell you, there is a lot of data out there that needs to trouble Republicans. Uh, for example, one of the most consistent poll numbers out there has been that 55% of self-described independents aren't sure who they want to vote for, but they know they want to vote against Donald Trump. Essentially, they're anybody but Donald Trump, and these are people who in the past voted for Mitt Romney and John McCain, and they want to go with a Democrat, or they want to sit home so they don't give a vote to Donald Trump. But, but, look at the individual polls, the, the swing states and the like. There's polling out of Virginia for Mason Dixon. Mason Dixon is one of the, the great pollsters in the country. Donald Trump beats every single Democrat except Joe Biden, and with Biden, it's only four points. Have you heard a lot about that poll? Mason Dixon is one of the, the highly respected pollsters in the country. And it wasn't just that you were on vacation, and I know it wasn't just that you were on vacation. I was on vacation too, and I was paying attention to the story to see how it played in the national press, and it's not. In Virginia, Donald Trump beats every single Democrat on the ballot except Joe Biden. In Florida, Donald Trump beats all of the Democrats except Joe Biden. In Georgia, Donald Trump beats all of the Democrats. Every single one of them. And yet we continue to have stories peddled about Georgia being a swing state. In Iowa, the president's doing well. In Michigan, the president's doing well. In Pennsylvania, the president's doing well. Now, sure, some can say, well, this is holiday polling. It's holiday polling. Holiday polling isn't quite accurate. Yeah, that's true. You could say it's holiday polling, except it's a pretty consistent trend line across states. And so what now is the media doing? Well, they're responding with such nuttiness as, oh, the president's going to have his Benghazi and we're going we're gonna to turn it on him. Or we got to have the stock market crash. Or playing up every little bit of bad news as much as they can. I kid you not, NBC News is even on the attack against the president on banning vaping. But you know why they're attacking him? Because he's not banning enough vaping. they, they got to find a way to go after him. We'll get into that when we come back. Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. By the way, we will get back to recipes this week. I took last week off. You were all gorging on your, your Christmas fixings anyway. You didn't need it. Uh, but if you want the recipe list, for those of you who don't know, I, I send out a recipe. I try to every week. A different recipe. I'm a big believer that we should be breaking bread with each other and, and you around your house. If you text the word recipe 
to 33777. Uh, I will send you, you'll get a request back for your email address, and I'll start emailing you uh, recipes every week. Uh, text recipe to 33777. Okay, I, I got to play this audio for you. Uh, remember, the, the president was being praised. Now, I personally think it's stupid. Uh, l- let me tell you how I feel first. So we'll take your phone calls as well. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, I, I personally think that raising the cigarette age to 21 is stupid nanny statism. And I personally think banning vaping is ridiculous. They are using uh, the, this moral panic over some people dying from vaping as a way to ban it. And they're not entirely banning it. They're banning the fruity flavored vapes, and the reason they're doing it in particular is because uh, a lot of kids under the age of 18 have gravitated towards it. Now, interestingly enough, this is related to raising the cigarette smoking age to 21. Do you know who was a big proponent of raising the age of smoking to 21? Any guesses? The cigarette industry. That's right. Uh, The major cigarette manufacturers in this country were supportive of raising the age of smoking to 21. They actually pushed it. And do you know why they pushed it? They pushed it because otherwise they were going to get regulated on vaping and they're making a killing on vaping. So the president is banning uh, vaping products that are fruity flavored and whatnot, but they're going to continue to allow uh, non-flavored menthol and and whatnot, nicotine-loaded vaping. They're doing it with the moral panic based on uh, the people dying from, I think they've now narrowed it down to uh, vitamin E acetate that was in some vaping products. Mostly it was people buying uh, marijuana vape cartridges, not actually tobacco vape cartridges. And they were buying, it was the marijuana vape cartridges they were buying on a black market, not like if you go to Las Vegas, there are huge dispensaries, and in California there are. They weren't getting them there. It It was people buying them elsewhere on the black market some of them potentially recycled, some of them fake. Uh, and, and that's what was happening. But they're using that as the launch pad to ban stuff. Let me play this NBC News clip. To snuff out the nation's vaping crisis, President Trump is choosing to compromise. We'll be take, taking it off the flavors for a period of time, certain flavors. Reportedly, all the sweet-tasting pods that are driving teen vaping. But menthol and tobacco will still be available. And vape shops still allowed to sell flavored liquids so adults can make their own e-cigs. We're going to protect our children and we're going to protect the industry. Yet even with the new 21-year age limit to buy e-cigarettes and other tobacco products, public health advocates say children will still be at risk. If simply raising the age of sale would work, we wouldn't have over 5 million kids under the age of 18 today using these products we need to do both we need to raise the age and we need to eliminate the flavors which have fueled this epidemic the administration initially promised a ban on all flavors in september but the 24 billion dollar vaping industry organized touting its more than 13,000 independent shops with some 58,000 jobs and threatening to withhold political support, running this ad in Palm Beach while the president vacationed. If you enact a flavor ban, this will cost you the election. The president trying to address a public health crisis while supporting an industry, all in an election year. Compromise. He didn't go far enough. It's not all being banned. Here's the thing you need to know, and I'm shocked by this. Believe it or not, the vaping ban 
sells very well with who? Suburban moms. The demographic the president wants to get back. And now suddenly he's being attacked by a news industry that's been wanting this for a while because he compromised. Well, it turns out uh, Julian Castro was actually still running for president, and the only way we know it is because he's announcing he's dropping out of the presidential race a, a month before Iowa. Yeah, we're about four weeks from the Democrats starting to cast their votes on the nominee. It's going to be Joe Biden. You know, I had my doubts there several months ago uh, that it was going to be Biden, but man, every bit of news out there now actually helps Biden. Uh, the, the the downside for Biden, and we'll get. Well, I want to spend some more time on the Democrats later. I don't actually want to get into a ton of it right now. We'll we'll get into more uh, probably in the third hour, uh, depending on on how things wind up. But every scenario in Iowa right now helps Joe Biden. But Joe Biden doesn't have a lot of money. Bernie Sanders has the most money, uh, and the Bernie Bros hate everybody, but. Bernie Sanders. It's going to be fun to watch. Uh, by the way, this is why so many presidents win second terms is because the other side uh, feuds over fundraising and, and runs out of cash trying to secure the nomination. And that's certainly happening with Joe Biden. Now, we'll get into all of this. But so here's the thing. Um, I, I played for you the clip before we went to break about vaping and, and NBC News knocking the president for his compromise now. It's not a complete ban on vaping. They want a complete ban on vaping. In playing this up, there were a lot of people who ran attack ads against the president in swing districts saying that, Mr. President, if you ban vaping, you're going to lose the election. It's, it's popular with a lot of people. I'm sorry. Let, let me just, I, I, I have strongly held opinions on vaping. I am going to apologize to everyone in advance. I'm going to apologize for all of the radio stations. We, we don't need to put me on delay here because you don't need to bleep me. I'm just going to tell you, people who vape look like a bunch of butt monkeys blowing steam out of their, their mouth. It, it's just, it's ridiculous. Yes, I just said butt monkey. on. It's just, it's, it's, it's stupid. Uh, where was I yesterday? I was coming out of the I was coming out of my local Publix here in Macon yesterday, and there was some hipster in his skinny jeans who he shouldn't. I mean, listen, there's no way I would wear skinny jeans. This guy had to have a crowbar to get himself into these skinny jeans. He had no business doing it. I have no business wearing skinny jeans. Have you seen me? We're working on it, but come on. This guy had no business being in skinny jeans with his Converse old school high tops that weren't even tied and then some sort of flannel shirt and a hipster hat on. Dude was not young. First of all, he wasn't young enough. And second, he had to have a crowbar to, to, to get into those pants. But he had this stupid vaping device and he comes out of the Publix and he can't wait to blow steam in every direction. Who does that? People who should not, that that's who. People who should know better. I just thought, you know, he had a woman with him. I, I don't know if she was on commission or what, but he has this woman with him. And I, I'm just thinking, it, this, this woman is not your friend. I don't know if she's related to you or married to you or what, but she's not your friend. Because if she was your friend, one, she would tell you, don't dress like you're 13. And two... Don't look like a steam-blowing butt monkey coming out of Publix. Blowing steam. The, the whole thing is ridiculous. I mean, just get a freaking cigarette. At least you you, you look somewhat like you know what you're doing as opposed to the, this, this device that blows steam everywhere. Fruity-flavored steam. You're not 12. 
It's just the whole thing disgusts me. It is it is such a such a uh, estrogen thing for men. That that's what it is. It's like estrogen implants for men. They I just the whole thing is ridiculous. Uh, yes, I have strongly held. Listen, I'm sorry if you're offended. I'm sorry if you're listening right now and you're offended because I'm telling you you're a steam-blowing butt monkey by by vaping. But it's true. You look ridiculous, and you just need to know. Someone needs to tell you, you look ridiculous. Charlie says to stop saying that. Okay, I will move on. But still, you look ridiculous. And I'm still opposed to the president banning it. I'm still opposed to the president uh, doing what he did. But I think it's ridiculous that he's now being attacked by the media for compromise on the issue. The president sold out to the tobacco lobby. Well, first of all, he shouldn't have done it at all. Because it, if you want to look ridiculous vaping, go for it. I don't care. And no one else should care either. And to the extent that they're going to say, well, we're going to do it because we have high school kids. Now, listen, I, I want to say this before I get a text message because I know there are teachers listening because they're not back in school yet. And, and I, I, I want to be very clear here. I, Whenever I get on the subject, I have a ton of teachers who reach out to me and say, but you don't understand. There are so many kids in high school vaping right now. You know what? I do understand. Uh, I've, I've had this conversation with parents whose kids go to different schools from mine. It's not really a problem at my kid's school, but in some of the other schools in our area, uh, middle and high school kids who are vaping the, the pretty, and I get it. It is a problem, but what is the legal purchase age? Who, who is buying the products? Who is giving them the products? The, the same will happen with cigarettes. Now, the difference several teachers have told me is that when you're smoking a cigarette, you smell like a cigarette. When you smoke one of these fruity-flavored vape things, you may not smell at all. Or you, you smell like you've had fruity-flavored gum or something. So I understand that. I, I, I don't want to make light of the concern here. And you do need to understand the concern as to why the president did this is because there is... A lot of concern in the polling, and that's it. In the polling, there's a lot of concern among suburban women about their children vaping out of sight. And they want someone to do something about it because they're not doing anything about it. And as a result, they are... Um, They're seeing the president take a position that will be supportive with suburban moms. And the media has decided they need to twist this on him because this is something suburban moms support. And they can't dare have the president get support from suburban moms in 2020. So they've now got to make it sound like the president sold out to the tobacco lobby. Again, this is a recurring pattern today in, in so many of the stories. We need to move on to the bad story, to, to the big story, to the story that we should all be paying attention to. When I left, when did I go on vacation? The week before Christmas, I went on vacation. And I'd put it off, and I'd put it off, and I'd put it off, and I finally, the Friday before I went on vacation, I finally had to say, um, I, I, I've got to, I got to point out 
there's a rise of anti-Semitism in this country. And it is happening with the alt-right. It is happening on the alt-left. It is happening in the mainstream left. It is a growing concern in this country. And then, sure enough, during Hanukkah, we had this attack in New York City. And the immediate reaction from progressive partisans was that this is yet another example of white nationalists who are fueled by the rhetoric of Donald Trump, who are out to get uh, Jewish people and harm them. Except it wasn't. It was a um, it was a black man who was the attacker, the alleged attacker, I guess we're supposed to say, who apparently his family said this was an, an anomaly. He wasn't anti-Semitic, and yet now we know he had a bunch of writings from Hitler, among other things. Um, it, it believes in this Jewish conspiracy. This comes on the heels of the uh, woman on the school board in what, Jersey City, New Jersey, talking about how the Jews are coming into their community and buying up property and bringing in drugs and prostitution and, and dragging black people down. I am amazed uh, by the recirculation of anti-Semitic tropes, and it's increasingly happening on the left. Now, I, I want to I thread this needle carefully here for you. There are a group of people who consider themselves Trump supporters. Some of them actually no longer consider themselves Trump supporters because the president is too pro-Israel. Like re- re- the, the synagogue attacker out in California— uh, condemned the president and his pro-Israel policy. He was made out to be some sort of Trump-supporting white nationalist, but in fact he attacked the president because the president was doing too much for Israel, and he couldn't be his president because the president was a Jew lover. When the media sees anti-Semitic attacks by white nationalists, their first reaction is to rush out and say, this is all Donald Trump's fault. It's all Donald Trump's fault. You know, Donald Trump has emboldened these people. Donald Trump has made it possible for these people to hate. Donald Trump has made it possible for these people to come out of the shadows. There, There's a story out today, basically, an, an op-ed I see being circulated by a bunch of blue checkmark people on social media that Donald Trump has allowed hate to come out of the shadows. It's always been there, but it's been in the shadows. And now, because he's president, he's allowed it to come out. Except the attack in New York City, uh, like so many of the attacks that are happening in New York City, the ones that don't get covered, uh, attacks on Jews in New York City are like uh, gun violence in Chicago. The media chooses not to cover them because they don't fit the right narrative. But they're growing. They're a problem. And this one was too prominent to be ignored by the media. Uh, One of the people still hospitalized. They're not sure if he'll ever come out of his coma. He's going to have brain damage more likely than not by this uh, machete-wielding attacker in New York. It's become a real problem on the left, and the left can't actually process it. The Atlantic, uh, the Daily Beast, other left-wing publications have all written their explainers, you know, trying to explain to you that, that it's all conservatives' fault. And the reality is it's not conservatives' fault. The reality is it is... Uh, progressive, left-wing, the local community, uh, poisoned in the mind attacks on Jews. It's increasingly prominent in certain areas of New York City and and the Daily Beast and the Atlantic and other left-wing publications tell you it's complicated. See, if, if, if it's a white person who attacks, it's, it's apparently very easy. It's, it's very straightforward. It's all Donald Trump's fault. 
that's the way to explain it. Just blame Trump. Blame Trump for everything. A, a, a radical who denounces Donald Trump for being too pro-Israel uh, goes into a sh- synagogue and shoots up the place, and it's all Donald Trump's fault. You see, he's his rhetoric allowed these people to come out of the woodwork. He's allowed the hate to fester. He's allowed it to come public. It's always been there. Uh, bigoted Americans have always been bigoted Americans, but now Donald Trump's allowed it to come out. But then when it's a, a black attacker, when it's a progressive activist who, who attacks or says something anti-Semitic, uh, it's complicated. We, we can't really do this. What was so interesting is is when the attack came out, when the announcement was made before anyone knew who the attacker was, you had a bunch of blue check marks on Twitter rushing out immediately to say, hey, it's it's another white nationalist. It's a white nationalist. And, and some of those people were even trying to say how the white nationalism has polluted the mind of certain black citizens in the country. And that these black people are now white nationalists too. If you attack someone who's Jewish, you're a white nationalist. It doesn't matter what race you are. Because Trump. They can't get the story straight. And now it's complicated. It's all complicated. What's complicated about believing mythologies about Jews and attacking them? What's complicated about believing mythology and acting out? But there's a problem, isn't there? I have to be careful here because I know what's going to happen, but I'm going to say this and it's going to upset some people. There was a story last week in the media. Man gives birth to child with help of female donor. I'll leave out the word. There may be children present. We don't need to get into that discussion. Now, if you do have kids in the car or you, you're scratching your head over this, it is biologically impossible for a man to give birth with a female donor, not of an egg, mind you, but of the uh, male substance that causes pregnancy. Yeah, it's physically impossible. Women don't create that substance and men do not produce eggs. But that was the headline in the media. And there were a lot of people when conservatives pointed out this is anti-science, this, it doesn't work this way. There were a lot of people who said, how, well, how does this affect you? Well, you shut up. It doesn't affect you, you, you bigot, you, you transphobe. See, this is part of the problem here. It does affect us, does it not? It, it completely affects us because the media wants to lecture us on a daily basis now about truth. And Republicans want to be lied to. And there are true things Republicans won't believe. Well, here comes the media peddling this nonsense. It's not true. It's anti-science. It, it's not true. Men cannot get pregnant. Women cannot be donors unless it's of eggs. And yet the media pushes this nonsense. And then wants to lecture us, well, this doesn't affect you. Y- yes, it does affect us. Truth matters. And truth matters all around. And uh, what we have now is, is we're in a situation where there's moral relativism, not moral objectivity. True things are no longer true things. They're only true if you want to believe them. And this creeps down into society in various ways. Some of them turn violent. There are enclaves of New York City where the local residents believe the Jews have come in and taken over businesses and brought in drugs and prostitution to undermine and and drive back into servitude black people. Who are you to tell them that's not true? When you're willing to believe all sorts of things that aren't true, when you're morally relativistic, they can be morally relativistic. I mean, the issue here now, this comes on the heels also of a church shooting in Texas. We'll, we'll get more into that in the outrage there. But 
the media, the only big difference now is the mob is not with the people who attacked the Jewish people in New York, and the mob is not with the people, with the man who attacked the, the people in the church, not with, not with the shooter in the church. But the mob is very much willing at the moment to, to turn on anyone who dares to point out the truth that men can't have babies. And the media goes along with that. And this trickles down across society, across the board in various ways, uh, and upends what is right and what is normal and what is true, so you can develop these pockets of mythology-believing enclaves in the United States where they really can believe absurd notions, like the Jews are coming in and re-enslaving black people by getting them addicted to drugs and prostitution. And they want to lash out at the Jews because the Jews did it. It's not true. But who are you to tell them it's not true when, when you believe so many things that the, the up is down and down is up and right is wrong and wrong is right? All of these different issues, they seem completely unconnected. And at surface they are, but deep down it has to do with a lot of societal decay. And a lot of that societal decay has to do with the disruption of what is true and right and normal and good. And the media wants to lecture Republicans that uh, you, you want to be lied to. You don't know what's true anymore, and yet the media peddles half these lies. And then when it comes to dealing with these situations, like the, the attack on the Jewish people in New York during Hanukkah, the response from the media initially is, oh, it's got to be white supremacism because of Trump. And when it turns out it's not, that oh, it's complicated. It's complicated. No. What is complicated about attacking Jewish residents of New York City? It's not complicated. It's evil, but you can't have that discussion anymore in the media because evil depends on moral objectivity and absolute truth, and the media is incapable anymore of dealing with those issues. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson, and yes, the phone lines actually are open. Uh, my, my call screener producer, indispensable right hand, is back from Montana where he escaped for several weeks of snow and relaxation with his family. Made me jealous. But he's back. He's answering phones. You can call 877-97-ERIC. Remember, it's E-R-I-C-K. Uh, that translates to 877-973-7425. Okay, I, I got to play this clip. Now, you know, I, I have been fairly regular on Meet the Up until the moment I said I would support the president in 2020, I was actually fairly regularly on Meet the Press. Uh, and suddenly not so much. Um, that does remind me I will be on <laughs> uh, real time uh, with Bill Maher later this month out in L.A. Uh, but it, it, I, I know Chuck Todd. I actually like Chuck Todd. Um, and I was really disappointed that NBC did this. I need to we need to play this audio. I want to read you guys a letter to the editor that we found in the Lexington Herald Leader. It was a fascinating attempt at trying to explain why um, some people support President Trump. Here's what he says. Why do good people support Trump? It's because people have been trained from childhood to believe in fairy tales. This set their minds up to accept things that make them feel good. The more fairy tales and lies he tells, the better they feel. Show me a person who believes in Noah's Ark, and I will show you a Trump voter. It, 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 look, this gets at something, Dean, that, that my executive producer likes to say is, hey, voters want to be lied to sometimes. They, they, don't, they don't always love being told hard truths. Why do you have to smear people who believe in Noah's Ark? You know, full disclosure, I believe Noah's Ark is true. I, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I, I believe it is God's holy word, and when God says Noah's Ark is true, it's true. You, you know who believed Noah's Ark was true? Jesus. 
Jesus, Matthew 24, talks about uh, Noah's Ark. Are you going to say Jesus didn't know what he was talking about? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Nothing was created apart from the Word creating it. I mean, he, he kind of believed Noah's Ark was true. There are 53% of the planet is Muslim, Christian, or Jewish. And then you've got Hindus and others who also have flood tales. Clearly something happened uh, very early in humanity's history when you have so many different uh, religions that still to this day believe in, in a flood, whether regional or global. I think it was global. And let's just say of, of the, what is it, uh, 1.8, 2.0, you basically got 5 billion people on the planet out of seven that, that truly genuinely believe or, or 4.2 billion people who believe in a flood. You, you take half of that who believe literally that there was a flood. You're still talking over 2 billion people and you're going to say they believe in a fairy tale and you're going to use that as a basis to lecture Trump voters on truth. I, that was a terrible decision by Meet the Press to mock people of faith, to say that people want to be lied to. There are people who want to be lied to, but they're also on the Democratic side and in the media as well, and they don't want to talk about that. That's part of the problem. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Glad to have you with me. Happy New Year. Back from vacation. I hope you guys had a hush, Siri. Hope you guys had a great vacation, too. It was nice to be off for a couple of weeks. Uh, thanks to Chris Burns for filling in for me while I was gone. This hour is brought to us by First Liberty of Georgia. If you are a small or medium-sized business and you want to grow, you need access to capital. If you need access to capital and you don't want to deal with a bank, go to firstlibertyga.com. Talk to the Frost family. They make their own lending decisions, and they can help you grow. Uh, FirstLibertyGA.com. Thanks very much to First Liberty of Georgia for sponsoring the program. First off, uh, I, I try to, this hour, focus on Georgia stuff, and we all need to be in prayer for John Lewis, who has stage 4 pancreatic cancer, uh, really in the fight of his life. Uh, the man is a fighter. And has an impressive history. I realize we live in highly partisan times. And I realize that there are a lot of Republicans who are, are skittish of John Lewis because he is a partisan Democrat. I think it is notable uh, the relationship he and Johnny Isaacson have had. Uh, they have had a very friendly, good working relationship together. Uh, I also think it is very notable that behind the scenes in Congress, John Lewis is thought of extremely highly uh, by Republicans. They seek him out to find him and seek his counsel when getting elected to office. Uh, he has a very good relationship with the Republican members of the Georgia delegation. All of them uh, speak very highly of John Lewis. Uh, he was a hero of the civil rights movement, got elected to Congress. Uh, he is a partisan. He makes no apologies about being a partisan, uh, but he's also a good person and he deserves prayer as he begins this battle with pancreatic cancer. Uh, and it, it is a, it's a tough one to beat. It very much is. And so he's in for a fight and keep him on your prayer list. If you would, uh, he's a good man. Now, we got to move on to other topics. Uh, to begin with, uh, Kelly Leffler is going to be our senator now. I think she gets sworn in uh, next week on the 6th. Uh, by the way, I feel obligated to say happy merry ninth day of Christmas. My Christmas decorations are still up because there are 12 days of Christmas, you heathen. 
And so my Christmas lights are still up. Uh, yours should be as well, because why? There are 12 days of Christmas, heathen. Keep your lights up. Nonetheless, uh, when Christmas ends, uh, we go to January 6th. That is Epiphany. That is is uh, Three Kings Day. That is the start of Mardi Gras season. Is where we have king cake and, and um, beer on tap and <laughs> for a month and a half until Mardi Gras. And Kelly Leffler will be sworn in. As our next United States Senator, she will be uh, taking over some of uh, Johnny Isaacson's uh, spots in the U.S. Senate. Uh, she will certainly, uh, she and David Perdue will be focused on veterans issues and on armed services issues as it relates to Georgia. And we will keep our eye on her. We're uh, working on scheduling an interview with Kelly Leffler. She's trying to uh still get a sense of setting up her office and how things should be. We will do that as soon as we can. Uh, her office has reached out uh, and we'll get something scheduled with her. I got to connect them with Charlie uh, and make that happen. They're interested in doing it, but obviously she's got a big deal coming up next week, getting sworn in, uh, getting situated as instead of Senator designate as the actual Senator for the state of Georgia, she has, you should know, come out very firmly against impeachment. Uh, Senator designate Leffler saying, uh, that it is a farce by the Democrats and uh, we need to get rid of it and move on. Which reminds me, you know, the, the president of the United States has still not actually been impeached. Is there... It's kind of farcical, is it not? I, I want to play this clip from Linda Ronstadt. Yeah, you know Linda Ronstadt, the singer. Linda Ronstadt was at the, the Kennedy Awards. Apparently, uh, Mike Pompeo was a huge fan of Linda Ronstadt, and Linda Ronstadt took the opportunity to, to uh, harass and harangue uh, Pompeo for being in the Trump administration. I want to play this on Linda Ronstadt. I've read that you have read a lot about the, the, uh, about, uh, the, the, the Weimar Republic in Germany, and you sort of see parallels between then and now. Well, great parallels. I mean, the intelligentsia of Berlin and the literati and the, all the artists were just busy doing their thing. And there were a lot of chances, as Hitler rose to power, there were a lot of chances to stop him and they didn't speak out. And the industrial complex thought that they could control him once they got him in office, and of course he was not controllable. And by the time he got established, he put his own people in place and you know stacked the courts and did what he had to do to consolidate his power. And we got Hitler and he destroyed Germany. He destroyed centuries of intellectual history, forward and backward. The, you know, the people like Beethoven and Goethe and Thomas Mann became jokes. They became Nazi laughingstock. I think a lot of people, though, would, would, would be surprised to hear comparisons between what happened then and, and, and now. If you read the history, you won't be surprised. It's exactly the same. Get, get, get find a common enemy for everybody to hate. When I was sure that Trump was going to get elected the day he announced. And I said, he's gonna, it's going to be like Hitler and the Mexicans are the new Jews. It's going to be like Hitler and the Mexicans are going to be the new Jews. Last week, while I was gone, I saw a, a, a number of stories out about how, you know, Hitler was actually smart. Stalin was actually smart. Trump's just an idiot. That essentially, you know, Hitler's actually was a better person than Donald Trump. The derangement on the left making these comparisons is it, it it's not it's not silly. I mean it is, but they're they're serious people. I mean, she's very serious. That was Anderson Cooper interviewing her, and she's she's quite serious that 
that this is going to happen. But here's the thing. So impeachment is still going on. The president has not actually been impeached. Uh, the Democrats, to yes, they voted to impeach, but they have not actually impeached. The vote to impeach means to begin the process to ferry articles of impeachment to the Senate, which Nancy Pelosi has not done, so the president is not impeached. And here comes these people saying, oh, he, he's worse than Hitler. So he's worse than Hitler, but they're not actually going to impeach him yet. And it still boggles my mind. We spent all of this time on we've got concentration camps going on at the border, and yet they're not going to do anything. And By the way, more and more polling here in Georgia shows uh, more and more voters, even in swing districts like Lucy McBass District, the six, that's the Roswell, Sandy Springs area in the north metro Atlanta suburbs, are turning against impeachment. The voters just want this to be decided at the ballot box. Let them do it. Uh, as the Democrats are perpetually in quest of turning Georgia into a swing state, they can't seem to get their act together, the Democrats, on this stuff. Uh, speaking of Georgia being a swing state, let's go to the phones. Jim calling from Athens. Welcome to the program, Jim. Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. And I still have my Christmas stuff up too. I just God bless just you. Lazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my wife started to tell me it's going to rain. You better take your stuff down. I'm like, it's raining already. We can we can wait a few more days. <laughs> That's right. Um, I'm just confused by this. I, I've heard a lot of say Georgia's going to be a swing state, and you've said consistently that's not going to happen. I'm, I'm wondering, and I'll hang up and listen, but just what what do you think would have to happen to make Georgia a swing state? Is that even a possibility? Uh, looking forward. Yeah. Okay. Jim, thanks very much for that. And yes, uh, demographically in Georgia, the Republicans need to figure some things out, but I still think they've got more time to do it. Now, what am I, I've always said 2024, probably, uh, when you look demographically here, here's the problem. Uh, how do I say this without being super insulting? Um, Sonny Perdue and Nathan Deal spent a lot of time building up the state to bring in businesses from out of state. And when they worked very hard, I mean, take, take the effort to lure Amazon to Georgia. What they did was they spent a lot of time bringing these, uh, whether it was Porsche or Mercedes or you name it into the state. Well, a bunch of people who came from those states came to Georgia, bringing the values from their other states, and they tend to be progressive. And so they helped shift the demographics of the Atlanta area towards the left more than it already was. You take as well the growth of the urban black voting population in Georgia. That's very Democrat. So the trend lines are good for the Democrats in Georgia. One of the problems for the Democrats in Georgia is they really don't have a bench of people to actually run. Look at the struggles they're having right now trying to find people to run against Purdue and Leffler. Having a real hard time. Uh, they're going to have to give Stacey Abrams a do-over in 2022 uh, against Brian Kemp, who is going to have plenty of time to establish himself as his own man, not Donald Trump's flunky in the suburbs. So how does this all play out? Well, the Republicans need to figure out how to crack the Hispanic voting population in Georgia and, and pull some uh, black Democratic voters towards them. Now, it is possible, actually. There is increasing data out there that uh, black and Hispanic voters are becoming disenchanted with the Democratic Party. Because the Democratic Party is rapidly becoming the party of overly educated atheist white people. And black and Hispanic voters in this country still tend to be the most uh, believing, most evangelical, if you will, or most Christian 
voters out there. Uh, black and Hispanic voters tend to go to church more regularly. They tend to be engaged in their communities at a faith level more regularly. They tend to believe in God. They tend to believe in objective morality. And the Democratic Party um, leadership no longer does. And that's becoming a problem, and it's going to be a problem here in Georgia. Now, what do the Democrats have to do to, to turn the state? First of all, I don't think 2020 is going to be the year that Democrats turn the state blue. Uh, they will certainly give Republicans a run for their money in certain areas. Uh, Lucy McBath may be able to hold on against Karen Handel. Uh, they may be able to pick up the 7th Congressional District. I don't think they'll be able to take up uh, take over the state legislature. I don't believe they'll be able to take over the um the state Senate or the state House. Uh, in fact, I've talked to a number of people uh, out there uh, who really do look at the data, uh, people who are Democrats, and say that's something they're saying for fundraising, but it's not something they actually think they'll be able to do uh, when it comes to 2020. And the reason they won't be able to do it when it comes to 2020 is because the data still is just not there yet for the ability to take over. They've still got a lot of groundwork they've got to lay. They, they've got to have uh, a deeper bench of people to choose from. They've got to deal with racial squabbling within the Democratic Party now. That, that's very, very uh, important, and we shouldn't be dismissive of it. Uh, there is a concern that they can't get black Democrats to mobilize for a white progressive. They need a black candidate. So who will that black candidate be? There's a big push to get Thurber Baker. Um, uh, not Thurber Baker. Um, 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 um. Michael, um, I'm sorry, the former labor commissioner who is now uh, in DeKalb County, uh, they want him to run. And they're trying to, they've got to find some black candidates to get black voters to run because increasingly black voters in Georgia are put off by uh, the white liberals. So the Democrats have to deal with all that. They've got to deal with the fundraising uh, disadvantage in Georgia. They've also got to deal with the fact that fundamentally in the suburbs, you know, those voters, and this is something I think a lot of people miss, the voters in the suburbs did not just overnight switch a, uh, switch a flip, my Lord, uh, flip a switch. Trust me, I am a professional. <laughs> they didn't just flip a switch one night and say, hey, you know what, I'm a partisan progressive Democrat. No, they just don't like Donald Trump. Now, this is, anecdote is not data. You're listening to me say, well, I'm a suburban woman or a suburban man, and I love Donald Trump. That's fine, but there are a lot of them who don't. And in 2018, that hurt the Republicans. But again, uh, not to be repetitious here, the Democrats registered a million people in Georgia. Almost 986,000 people were registered to vote in 2018. Less than 100,000 of those people actually showed up and voted. Stacey Abrams was able to get 40,000 more votes than Hillary Clinton, which is extraordinary because it's an off-year election. The Democrats showed up like it was a presidential election. The problem is the Republicans didn't. In 2020, the Republicans will show up like it's a presidential election as well, and they will probably be able to take some seats back in the state legislature, frankly. If you talk behind the scenes privately to a lot of the nonpartisan pundits and political analysts out there, they actually think the Republicans may have a better year in Georgia than people think. Because the Republicans didn't turn up in 2018, and they will turn up in 2020, and that's going to make a difference. That's going to matter. So can Georgia become a swing state? Yes. Is Georgia a swing state? No. Is it a battleground state? Yes. Now, why is it a battleground state? Battleground states and swing states are different. Swing states goes back and forth, Republican, Democrat. Battleground state is a state where they're actually going to fight over it, uh, even if one side wins. They're going to fight over it because the Democrats understand this. 
The Republicans know the demographic winds are shifting in Georgia. The national Republicans are not as clued in as the Georgia Republicans, so they don't know when that shift is actually going to happen. So the Democrats can pour resources into Georgia, hoping to pick up some seats in the state legislature, and Republicans will have to respond in kind because the Republicans don't want to risk the legislature. They still want to try to get back the 6th Congressional District. They want to hold on to the 7th Congressional District. So there will be a huge fight in Georgia. No, it's not going to go for the Democrats for president. But you could see some shifting in the congressional districts in the state legislature. So the Democrats are going to pour money in. The Republicans are going to have to respond. That'll mean it's a battleground. That's great for me and, and radio and advertising on local stations. But no, it doesn't actually mean the Democrats are going to take the state back just yet. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of this program, uh, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Welcome back. Happy New Year. Hope you guys had a good Christmas. We did. Uh, my wife and I decided not to buy each other presents this year. Normally, you know, we go through the whole thing of, oh, what do you want? I don't know. What do you want? Kind of like what we do for dinner every night. Uh, and we just decided we're, we were going to take a date night. We weren't going to stress out about buying people, uh, buying each other presents. Uh, so if you're ever in the Atlanta area, my favorite restaurant in the Atlanta area is called Table in Maine. It's up in Roswell. Uh, every ingredient in the place comes from within 50 miles of the store, it's, it's 50 miles of the restaurant. It's just, it's a, it's a great, great restaurant, uh, Table in Maine. Uh, so here in Macon, uh, the week, the Friday before Christmas, uh, they, in fact, it was my last day on air that, that evening I threw Christy a birthday party. It's going to be a surprise, but she hates crowds and surprises. So all of her friends said, I better tell her or else. Uh, so we went to downtown grill if, in the Macon area. I got restaurants all over the state. <laughs> Have you seen me? I like to eat. Uh, Downtown Grill in, in Macon, Georgia is a fantastic steakhouse in Macon. Uh, and so we, we had a birthday party for her at Downtown Grill in Macon and then went up to her parents in Carrollton for Christmas. And I took her to Table of Maine up in Roswell Christmas uh, the night after Christmas. And it was, it was great. Uh, had a good time. And it was just nice not to have to stress over getting each other gifts. And you will not be surprised to learn that my kids got me different cookbooks for Christmas. Uh, I, I love cooking. It was a, it was a good it was a good time off. Uh, thanks again to Chris Burns for filling in for me. Uh, good guy, uh, and I actually enjoyed listening to him filling in for me. Um, I, I can't listen to myself on radio. Uh, nonetheless, um, now we got to get back into other topics. We'll take your phone calls as well. Eight seven seven nine seven Eric. Eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. But I, I got I can't. I don't know if it was Charlie or Philip who sent me the story. Uh, the Antique Road Show has an expert. You know the Antique Road Show. This is from the Independent Eagle. Um, who is this? Andy McConnell. He's a glass specialist. And thinking that he was tapping into a 150-year-old port, uh, not a 150-year-old port where ships are, a 150-year-old port as in the alcoholic drink, uh, he inserted a with a needle a syringe through the cork of a bottle to extract the liquid and taste it. And now I'm going to gag telling you this story. <laughs> it was a bottle of urine and rusty nails and human hair. Yes. Yes. He thought it was a... 150-year-old bottle of port. Nope. It was a 150-year-old bottle filled with urine, rusty nails, and human hair. He, he said he was happy for the experience, though. 
happy for the experience. God help us. Um, yeah, there you have it. I, I, I have no idea why I'm talking about this now, but I am. Um, there, there you have it. The, the antique roadshow host who decided to, to do that. Now, <laughs> we'll move on to other subjects. Um, when we come back, the state legislature convenes here in Georgia on January 13th, and I got some thoughts on that. But also, uh, the film tax credit is a... <laughs> yeah, my buddy's just texting me. Philip says, so you're t- saying it tastes like normal wine? Probably. So. I, I'm not a wine drinker. I do not like it. Uh, don't, don't ever get me a bottle of wine. Um, the film tax credit is going to be subject to debate in the legislature. And oddly enough, we're hearing all these things about manufacturing downturn. Uh, Charlie flagged this story for me earlier. Manufacturing in Georgia, niche manufacturing is on the upswing in the state of Georgia. In large part, it has to do with the competitive um, business regulations and in business laws in the state that Brian Kemp has been pushing. Uh, niche manufacturing on the upswing. The film tax credit is going to be under debate in the legislature when it comes back. Gambling, it looks like, may also be an issue. Do we have uh, sports betting and horse racing in the state of Georgia? That'll all be one of the big issues in the state. Uh, the legislature convenes January 13th. I want to talk about that. And also, MSNBC has its big winner for 2019. Yes, friends. Stacey Abrams who lost the 2018 gubernatorial race in Georgia, is somehow or another the big winner of 2019. We'll discuss. You should text RECIPE to 33777, uh, and I will get back to sending out recipes this week. i got to pick one out. Uh, I guess I sent it out today, looking at the calendar. It's Thursday. It's recipe day, so i got to come up with something to send out. Um, who knows? Maybe it'll be the pound. Oh, my wife makes the best pound cake. She really does. I guess I need to resend that recipe. So text recipe to 33777, and I'll send the pound cake recipe today. But um, let me explain the texting. This is relevant to our conversation here. I have a number of text lists uh, that, for example, if you want to get the recipe every week, you text recipe to 33777. Uh, I send out a daily email, just stuff conservatives need to know. Your headlines of the day, my, my take on them, uh, other people's takes on them, links to, to different websites of, of all the news that conservatives need, along with the podcast link for the show. And if you want it, you text the word show to 33777. But I, I, I need to actually focus on the word army. Uh, to 33777. Here's why. If you're listening nationwide, you'll just have to forgive me for a minute. Um, this is a Georgia-based radio program. For I, 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 I want to expand this to a regional program. I, I want to expand it to a nationwide program when slots free up. You're, you're essentially waiting for some, some wonderful people, many of whom are friends of mine, to retire uh, to get to a national program. I'm, I'm willing to be patient. I'm willing to wait. I'd love for this to be more regional, not just Georgia-focused, but right now it's Georgia-focused. Uh, we, we've started in Georgia. We've expanded now across the state of Georgia. You can actually listen to me. I don't know why you'd want to, but you can listen all the way from Chattanooga to Valdosta, uh, going down 75. You can get me live except in Atlanta and there I'm on in the evening. A, but I also like Georgia politics and, and this is the only show where a, a politician, for example, can come on and reach the entire state on one show. And if they're on the right, actually have a, uh, conservatives who are listening and a conservative host who's not going to be hostile to them or combative with them for daring to be conservative. 
but one of the things that I, I like to focus on, and you're about to find out in two weeks how much I focus on it, is the Georgia legislature will begin meeting on January 13th. I am not a fan of the Georgia legislature. And the reason I am not a fan of the Georgia legislature is, by and large, the leadership within our legislature, not, not the lieutenant governor, mind you, um, but a lot of the, the prominent committee chairman and others are there by virtue of their tenure. And many of them were Democrats, and they just switched the letter after their name to hold on to power. Their thinking is still Democratic. They, for example, in the state Senate, the Republicans are the obstacle to school reform. Your child is in a failing school in the state of Georgia, and it is the Republican state senators who are the obstacle to it. There are Republican votes for school reform in the House of Representatives. Even with David Ralston not sympathetic to it, uh, there are enough votes in the House of Representatives to get meaningful school reform passed in Georgia. It is your state Senate Republicans uh, who are opposed to it. Butch Miller and the rest are opposed to, in fact, it was Butch Miller who scuttled uh, education reform in the last legislative session. It is a bunch of Republicans who still think like Democrats. We are blessed now to have a, a lieutenant governor who is very, very, very Republican and conservative and who supports school choice. And we are blessed to have a Republican governor who is a conservative who supports school choice. You know, David or Brian Kemp is our first Republican governor who's always been a Republican. Nathan Deal and Sonny Perdue were both Democrats who became Republican. Uh, and no offense to them, they, they did plenty of things that I liked, uh, but they still at heart institutionally, I think, had, had a lot of Democratic underpinnings that Brian Kemp doesn't have. Brian Kemp supports school choice, uh, aggressively so, as does Jeff Duncan in the state Senate. Uh, and they're willing to make a fight on, on those issues. There are other fights coming up in the state, and some in which, frankly, I think I may disagree with them and may agree with someone like Lindsey Tippins in the state Senate. And that comes to the film tax credit in the state of Georgia that's going to be a big issue. Now, I bring all these things up and I reference the texting number because during the state legislative session, I have an activist engine. And let me explain to you the way it works. Uh, when there's an issue that uh, we all care about in the state legislature, I have the ability to send you by text message a link on your smartphone. When you click the link, it connects you to your state legislator. Can you imagine the impact as I grow the show around the state that from across state, not just Metro Atlanta, it's always been easy for me, Metro Atlanta, because I got a highly listened to, just the most listened to local show in the country right now, local talk show in, in Atlanta in, in the evenings. So now I've got the most listened to statewide talk show in Georgia in the mornings. And having you connect in real time with your member of the state legislature and melt the phone lines in the state capitol when there's an issue you and I care about, whether it's school choice or, or several years ago it was allowing brewers to be able to sell their uh, craft beer directly to consumers, being able to fire up the activist engine to connect you to your member of the state legislature. One of my jobs here that I, I view it very, very strongly as part of my job, in addition to keeping you entertained, I mean, not, none of this, you know, I, I can't do anything that I want to do as a political activist, and I, I am a political activist. I make no bones about it. 
but I, I couldn't do any of that. If I can't entertain you and keep you engaged and, and have you listen to me, uh, have you have you find some, some stuff worthwhile so you want to come back? I, none of this would be good. you you got to entertain first. You, you, I, I am at heart. My job is to keep you company. Uh, but then in keeping you company, I, I believe my job is to educate you about what's happening, motivate you to be involved in the process, and then activate you when needed. And, and part of that is providing you the tools so that you can be involved, so that you can reach out to the state legislature. When, for example, school choice comes up, many of you, your kids are in schools that could be improved by competition, or you're in a charter school and your charter school is perpetually under threat by Democratic activists in your local community or statewide. We've got a great one. There's just down the road for me. In fact, it, it kind of aggravates me. Uh, so for Christmas, I was headed to the gym, and they let out all the kids. We've got the school. It's it's ACE, um, the, the Academy of Classical Education. It's down the street from me here in Macon. They let all, all thousand kids at one time. It tied up traffic for three hours on my road. It was a mess. Uh, but it is a great charter school, and it is perpetually under attack by uh, Democratic activists and uh, boards of education and the like because the school has become so successful. It's now no longer just a Bibb County school. They're allowing kids from Monroe County and Jones County, the surrounding counties, to come to the school. And so they're always under attack. And the legislature could do a better job of, of um, backing up these charter schools. They could do a better job of helping parents get their kids out of uh, public schools into private schools through scholarship opportunities, and they don't. And it's because of Republicans in the legislature. It has nothing to do with Democrats. So one of the things I try to do is to get you involved when the legislature meets. All you have to do, it is very simple. You text the word ARMY, A-R-M-Y, to 33777. So on your cell phone, go to your texting app, and the number you want to text to is 33777. And then all you have to do is put in one word, ARMY. And you will sign up for the conservative army of activists who listen to this radio program. And when there's an issue before the state legislature that I think you need to know about, I send an email. That email list does not get spam. It doesn't get ads. It just gets emails and says, hey, here's what's happening in the legislature. You need to know about it. And here's how you can take action. Uh, I, I would, one of my frustrations with conservative talk radio in part is it becomes very active where you get used to me telling you what's going on and I don't tell you what to do. I, I don't provide you the, the means and opportunity to take action. It does you very little for me to sit here and cause your blood pressure to go up. And then not provide you the tools by which you can engage with your elected officials. And personally, I find that it's useful. That I can, I, I, I y'all, it, it actually is, it is a genius thing, and I can't wait to show it to you, uh, where I can text you. And on your cell phone while you're in your, not in your car and driving, mind you, you're stuck in the line at the Chick-fil-A that takes you five hours to get your chicken biscuit. We'll, we'll get there one day. Or you're in your office, and I just text you in a link, and you click the link, and suddenly, here's the issue. Put in your contact information, and I'm going to connect you with your state legislature, and here's what you need to tell them. And that's it, whether it's school choice or uh, regulatory reform in the state or the gambling issue, the casino, whatever. Uh, gun rights issues in the state, we'll get there. But you got to text the word ARMY to 33777 to play part of it. Uh, the, don't ever be the person 
who just wants to be mad and not take action. Don't ever be the person who cares about an issue and then sits back and does nothing. And I don't want you to be that person. I, I want to be able to help you stay engaged. One of the issues that's going to come up in the state legislature is the film tax credit. The tax credit uh, is $870 million now. I want to read for you. This is from Jim Galloway uh, in the AJC. Georgia's generous tax credits to film and TV production companies have sparked a billion-dollar studio boom here. This is a solid fact. The question now is whether the financial lure will remain a sacred cow in a season of widespread cuts to the state budget. The tax credits, which grew from $141 million in 2010 to an estimated $870 million in 2019, have been a policy mainstay over the course of two previous Republican administrations. Only last September... Another joined the choir, Brian Kemp, bragged that we remain the Hollywood of the South, pointing to $2.9 billion in direct spending from film and TV production in the state. The protection's been bipartisan. Georgia Democrats have shaken off liberal attempts to take the state's film industry hostage in a battle over abortion. And in November, they held a presidential debate on one of Tyler Perry's sound stages. But a new challenge to the tax credit policy is emerging from the political right. Lindsay Tippins of Marietta is one of the more influential Republican members of the state Senate. On Monday, he served notice he and other Republicans would be looking at reducing film production credits, the largest pot of tax incentives offered by the state, as a way of avoiding some of the serious cuts to a $27 billion state budget order by the governor. Georgia's state government doesn't have a spending problem, Tippins said. It has an income problem. We keep hearing that revenues aren't where we projected them to be. To me, that's almost a contradiction, pointing to the state's record unemployment figures. People are spending, low unemployment, more people working. There should be more money in the economy. There should be more taxes generated, and yet our taxes are stagnant. It's not like our spending is exceeding potential revenue. I think money that should be tax revenue is being diverted by exemptions and credits. The credits amount to roughly 3% of the current state budget, Kemp has called for a 4% cut in many areas of this year, 6% in cuts for next year. Tippins is a skeptic when it comes to the value of the incentives we offer film and TV companies. He says Georgia is trailing other states because it's not adopted a plan for regular evaluation of tax incentives. The states provide hundreds of millions of dollars in film tax credits, but has not rigorously studied the results of the program. He's relying on a paper published by J.C. Bradbury, an economist at Kennesaw State. By the way, just as an aside, uh, Kennesaw State has a remarkable business program. I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day who is going up there right now, and he was telling me about their uh, department. It sounds really amazing. I keep hearing more and more good stuff about Kennesaw State's business program. In any event, J.C. Bradbury uh, says that the State Department of Economic Development relies on incredible multipliers and dubious data. Specifically, he's calling out claims the film and TV industry has generated $9.5 billion in economic impact in Georgia and generated 92,000 jobs. He estimates the tax credit impact is actually less than half what the state's estimated, no more than $4.2 billion. And film industry activity may have generated 32,000 jobs in Georgia, but that would be on the high side. The Department of Economic Development's commission to Georgia Tech study on the impact of Georgia's film and TV credit. We don't know what is going to be produced. State officials, including those representing the governor, have declined to speak on it, but one presumes they'll want state lawmakers to see some solid figures. 
Fiscal conservatives like Tippins are going to be joined by cultural conservatives who think the film industry is moving the state to the left, and arguably it is. I, I don't think there's a debate uh, that the film industry here in Georgia is pushing the state somewhat to the left, although i got to tell you, I continue to meet people in the film and, and TV industry here in Georgia who are solid conservatives. The question is, do we need such a big tax incentive? Now, the way the tax credit works is, is essentially a rebate that actually helps Georgia businesses. The, and the theory is that essentially you, you keep the, the film industry from having to pay taxes in Georgia when they come work here. And they will create so much work in so many jobs that all those other people and all those other industries will wind up paying the taxes. And what Tippins is arguing is that, that uh, essentially it's not trickle down, it's trickle over effect is not actually happening that we're not we're we're giving up way more money than we need to as a state there is something to be said on this data point and i i think at this point this is an inarguable data point and how you handle it i don't know that i have the answer to but it is a reality of the state of georgia that we are in an economically very good cycle right now we have full employment in the state of Georgia, record low unemployment, I think 3.2% unemployment in Georgia right now. We have major manufacturing hubs. We've got a, a story we'll get to here in a little bit on uh, manufacturing revitalizing in Georgia. We've got major Fortune 500 companies that are in Georgia, and our tax revenue is stagnant. Other states that are similarly situated have seen an increase in tax revenue in their states, and ours is stagnant. And people are looking for the culprit. And a lot of people are pointing the finger at the film industry, whether that's fair or not. They're pointing the finger saying, we're giving up a, a whole lot of money over here that we could be generating. And Tippins is, is saying that as well. And the result is the governor wants budget cuts next year, and maybe we need to reduce the film tax credit. I don't think anybody's thinking of getting rid of it, but does it need to be as high as it is, the highest in the nation? But let's be honest here. Let's not just pick on the film industry here. The state legislature just gave Delta a huge tax credit they've made, the, the uh, Department of Revenue has made permanent on jet fuel. They're not going to have to pay taxes on jet fuel. The state of Georgia is notorious for giving tax credits to a bunch of people and a bunch of industries and a bunch of lobbying groups. And maybe instead of just picking on the film industry, we need a holistic review of all the tax credits in the state of Georgia. I was just texting Chris Burns listening to the program, said he, he didn't know about the jet fuel tax credit. Yeah, so if you recall, a couple of years ago in the legislature, I guess it, well, I guess it was 2018, uh, the beginning of, of the year, there was an issue over Delta having to pay a tax uh, in Clayton County because the airport, the Atlanta airport, is actually in Clayton County. And there was legislation to allow Clayton County to collect sales and use tax on jet fuel sold, and the state overrode it. Now, the reason they did, you do need to understand this, is Georgia is the only state in the country that allows municipalities to, to collect a jet fuel tax at major airports. And Delta argued, and I think Delta was correct, that uh, they would put them in Atlanta at a competitive disadvantage. Your uh, ticket fees had to be higher in Atlanta for Delta than anywhere else because of the jet fuel tax. And that, that, that made sense to me. The problem is that this, uh, then you'll recall Delta did the thing with the NRA and Casey Cagle running for governor seized it as an opportunity to tell Delta to basically, uh, where to go and how to get there. 
So Nathan Deal uh, exempted Delta from the fuel tax, uh, state fuel tax, and did it through an executive order. He then called the legislature into a special session, and the legislature, and this is the bizarre part of it, the legislature agreed to go along with the tax exemption. But there's weird language in the law. Uh, There are two exemptions for Delta, and the legislature seemingly uh, obfuscated the language. In one paragraph, it says that uh, Delta gets a permanent tax exemption or tax credit uh, for the tax uh, for for the fuel that Delta buys, uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I say tax credit. I, I should say tax exemption. Delta does not have to pay state or local uh, fuel tax for the fuel that it puts in its planes, and no other no other airline does at the Atlanta uh, Two Dead Mares International Airport. And it was a temporary exemption to end at the end of 2019. But then there's another paragraph under a different statute uh, that says Delta gets a permanent. Uh, Delta gets a tax credit. And the Department of Revenue decided that because of the confusion in the language of the legislation, that it was going to determine that Delta gets a permanent, indefinite uh, exemption on paying taxes on fuel. And, and gets a credit for some local taxes paid. In other words, uh, Delta came out a huge winner. And how did they do it? They didn't do it through the state legislature. They did it through an interpretation by the Department of Revenue that some members of the state legislature say is, is wrong. And I would not be surprised if we see some of them sue. Now, the executive branch uh, is saying, hey, it's the legislature that screwed up the language. They made it super unclear. The Department of Revenue is doing the best they can. Uh, I suspect what you're going to see is that you'll have the leadership of the legislature uh, blocking any attempt to clarify the language. So Delta gets out of the scot-free. And then you got the fuel industry, or I'm sorry, the, the, the film industry. The film industry gets an unlimited credit. A, a buddy of mine who's listening, uh, who's in the film industry, says, you know, even California puts a cap on the credit that the film industry gets. Georgia doesn't even do that. This reminds me of the Georgia legislature uh, putting the tax credit in for electric cars. And suddenly Georgia had the greatest um, market for electric cars in the country. You could get an electric car in Georgia, and I think it was something like $10,000 at one point. So people were going out and getting Teslas, and the state was giving them a $10,000 credit on their taxes. It was crazy. They got rid of it, and guess what? The electric car market uh, dropped in Georgia pretty significantly, which suggests it was an artificial market to begin with. If you need tax incentives to get something going and the market collapses when the incentives go away, you're probably actually in an artificially inflated market. Something we need to think about in the state, uh, bad economics overall. Well, I wasn't going to do it, but I feel compelled to do it. <laughs> uh, we got a, a, a big mass of weather that is impacting pretty much the whole of the state of Georgia right now. Uh, Dalton, Jasper, Rome, Clarksville, Young Harris, Athens, uh, Macon, even Vidalia now, and Eastman. Uh, all the way down to, towards Unadilla on 75. Uh, lots of rain, heavy also in the Colum- north of Columbus. Uh, LaGrange, uh, Carrollton, that's the heaviest on the west side of the state right now. But it is moving to the east uh, as it comes into the state. Let me set the radar in motion. Uh, the Athens area and the Clarksville area, you're going to get some serious weather here 
in the next couple of hours, and Rome was through it, and so was Dalton, and they're about to be back in it as well. So uh, make sure your headlights are on if you're in the, on the road today out there. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. Uh, the phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, thanks for joining me. Hope you had a Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Glad to be back on the radio. Uh, this hour is, again, sponsored by First Liberty of Georgia, firstlibertyga.com. You need access to capital because you got a small business, a medium-sized business, and you hate to deal with the bank bureaucracy. Talk to the Frost family at First Liberty of Georgia. They're great supporters of this program, uh, good friends, uh, good conservatives, and they may be able to help you. Go to firstlibertyga.com. That's their website. You can get their contact info. And thank you to them for being loyal sponsors and supporters of the show. If you've got a business, by the way, uh, that you want to advertise, get statewide exposure, reach out to us here. Uh, we need advertisers to keep the show going, uh, and we're happy to to talk to you about doing ads on the show for statewide reach. You want to sponsor the program? Um, I, I got a couple of companies I want to want to reach out to as as we continue to grow as well, and and hoping to get into some new big markets here in the state. I guess the the latest one that we picked up was Macon, uh, the middle of December, uh, which is kind of great for me because I live in Macon, so it's nice to be on the radio. Except now people are coming up to me in the grocery store. <laughs> Although for two weeks, it was about Chris. So so uh, now I'm back. I guess it'll be about me. Now, uh, again, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, the New York Times, uh, while I was out, in fact, it happened this Sunday. I want to read you the headline of the story. This was from Sunday. This is the center Above the fold of the New York Times, which means it is the most prominent story on the page. This is the headline. As it detains parents, China weans children from Islam. And the subtitle, New Boarding Schools Redirect Faith from Religion to Party. You know, the New York Times takes money from the Chinese government. It publishes China Daily Propaganda, which is the official mouthpiece of the communist regime. The Washington Post has done it. The New York Times does it. And here comes a story out of the New York Times that suggests China is just weaning children from Islam, detaining parents and weaning children. They're little baby Yodas, as, as uh, Robbie so Soav on, on uh, Twitter notes. It's just indoctrination. It's it's the younglings going to the Jedi Academy. They're just weaning them off their religion, particularly Islam. China can get away with this. Well, uh, look at this. It, it's not just China. Uh, a, a pastor in China has also been detained. A, a in fact, let me let me find this. Um, my buddy Josh sent me this, and I need to. Find his email that he sent. Uh, where is it? Uh, because it's it's a rather important one. Um, no, I guess I, I can't find it immediately. Um, China has detained one of its most prominent Christian pastors. He was originally under house arrest. And he's no longer under house arrest. He's been disappeared. 
placed into uh, essentially into one of the mini concentration camps that China operates to distract from and uh, take away religious people in China, distract us from what's going on, their their boarding schools. I mean, this is what the headline of the New York Times is calling this for the Chinese children, boarding schools. And what it actually is, is they're essentially concentration camps. Uh, the, the Muslims who go to these and the Christians who go to these more often than not wind up dying there, never to be seen or heard from again. The particular pastor in China uh, who is being detained, thankfully, the uh, American government is speaking out on his behalf. Uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, tweeted out, I'm alarmed that Pastor Wang Yi, leader of Chindu's early reign house church, was tried in secret and sentenced to nine years in prison on trumped-up charges. Beijing must release him and end its intensified repression of Christians and members of other religious groups. Uh, let me set the stage for you here. Because... I, I need to give you some perspective on, on the Chinese situation. In China, they look on the fall of the Soviet Union with fear and trepidation because they are desperate to hang on. And one of the things that they have done is they have blamed Christianity for the collapse of the Soviet Union. You see, this pope, uh, Pope Francis, has done a, a terrible job. He, he's collaborated with the Chinese to some degree on picking um, ministers in certain churches in China, which his predecessors refused to do. There are some Catholic cardinals and bishops in China who uh, refuse to go along with the state. Uh, some of them are anonymous. Some of them are in camps. But the Chinese look on what happened in the Soviet Union, particularly pinning their finger on Pope John Paul II and his visits to Poland and elsewhere in Eastern Europe, and, and they believe that Christianity helped break up the communist regime in the Soviet Union. China has always been skeptical of religion, uh, but there is a lot of data out there now that there are actually more practicing Christians in China than in the United States now. Think about that. China has a billion-person population. We have 350 million people. We have, uh, of the 350 million Americans, about 150 million identify as Christian. Of those... About 100 million, just, just keeping the number simple, actually go to church on occasion or, or all the time. China has more than 100 million people now who identify as Christian. In fact, do you know where the two areas in the world are with the fastest growing populations of Christians? Iran and China. Followed by India, you should know. All three are places that are... Um, deep into persecution of Christians and people of faith. China sees the growth of Christianity as a national security threat because of what happened to the Soviet Union and the, the educated belief among numerous people that uh, the rise of Christianity and the church helped to bring about the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it's not just Christianity, it's also Islam, because Islam, like Christianity, 
teaches that there is a higher power and your loyalty must go there before it goes to the state. And China does not want you to have loyalty outside of the state. So China has been rounding up people of faith and putting them in concentration camps. And I, I don't use the word lightly. It's not the, the Democrat claims of concentration camps on the American border. It's actually concentration camps. And in the process of doing that, they have been taking the children and trying to indoctrinate the children into the Communist Party. They've been trying to indoctrinate the kids into uh, being full-fledged members of the Communist Party. And, and more importantly, that this is very important, can't say this enough, uh, also denouncing their parents. The kids are taught that their parents are bad. What we don't have in this country is a movement of prominent elites willing to call that out outside of the Trump administration. We don't because many of the elites in this country are also deeply skeptical of religion. I mean, again, I, 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 I think I played this in the first hour. It's worth playing again and dwelling upon. Let me read you. This is a letter to the editor in a newspaper, and it was an editorial decision at Meet the Press for Chuck Todd to read this particular letter to the editor about Trump voters. I want to read you guys a letter to the editor that we found in the Lexington Herald Leader. It was a fascinating attempt at trying to explain why um, some people support President Trump. Here's what he says. Why do good people support Trump? It's because people have been trained from childhood to believe in fairy tales. This set their minds up to accept things that make them feel good. The more fairy tales and lies he tells, the better they feel. Show me a person who believes in Noah's Ark and I will show you a Trump voter. We're trained from an early age to believe in fairy tales like Noah's Ark. As I, I noted in the first hour, there are 53% of the world population uh, is Muslim or Christian and, and, and Jewish as well. We'll put them in there, 53 to 54% of the world population. Muslims believe in Noah's Ark. Uh, Muslims actually incorporate uh, the Jewish-Christian view of Noah's Ark into their religion. Let's just say, so you got, what, four, four some odd uh, billion people on the planet who are Christian or Muslim. Let's say half of them take their faith very seriously, uh, believe in the inerrancy of Scripture like I do as a Christian. That's still over two billion people on planet Earth. Here is an American news outlet a prominent news anchor who wants to talk about uh, Trump voters being willing to be lied to. And the editorial choice of the news program, the longest lasting news program on planet Earth, or at least in the United States, but I think it's globally. Meet the Press has been on for so long. They choose to use a letter from a man who says that children have grown up believing fairy tales like Noah's Ark. And that they want to be lied to. And that if you believe in Noah's Ark, you're probably a Trump voter. I, I know plenty of people who believe Noah's Ark is true and aren't Trump voters, by the way. And there are two billion plus people on the planet who take it literally seriously true. There are over four billion people on planet Earth who take Noah's Ark as being a, a quintessential part of their faith. Jesus Christ himself believed Noah's Ark was a real story about a real person and a real boat and a real flood. Are you going to say Jesus was wrong? Apparently at NBC News that they think he's a believer in fairy tales. Maybe they think he's a fairy tale. You don't have an you don't have American elite media institutions, many of whom are taking money from China, by the way, who are willing to denounce these issues. 
because China plays such a big part now in the global economy. And, I mean, take the, the woke NBA players who won't speak out on Hong Kong, who say it's complicated. It, it's very much like, have you noticed the, the NBA players who say that it's complicated, that, that they can't speak out on Hong Kong because it's a complicated issue? Very much like the media who, when confronted with the violence on Jews in this country, if it's from, from the right, oh, it's, it's Trump. Trump's to blame. But if it's from the left, ah, it's, it's complicated. We can't really take a position on this because it's complicated. It's, it's deep-rooted in, in cultural issues. They do the same thing with China when it comes to this stuff. China jailing uh, the pastor in charge of the early reign covenant church in China. Pastor Wang Yi and his wife, uh, Yang Rong, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering their names, were charged with inciting to subvert state power. They have been taken to secret locations. Other church leaders and members were placed in the Chengdu City Detention Center on charges of picking quarrels and provoking trouble and illegal business operations. Since December 9th, more than 50 Christians from the church have been jailed. On November 29th, Elder Quinn Defu was sentenced to four years in prison for illegal business operations. After a secret trial on December 26, 2019, Pastor Wang Yi was sentenced on December 30th, 2019 to nine years in prison for inciting to subvert state power and illegal business operations. During the raid on December 9th around in 2018, 50 students at the church's seminary and liberal arts college were sent to education centers where they're kept for multiple days before being escorted by police back to their hometowns. Other church members were similarly escorted by police back to their hometowns and forbidden from returning to Chengdu. Most church members who were not jailed have been harassed by police and national security at their homes. Many have been placed on house arrest with officers guarding the doors of their homes, forbidding them from leaving or following them when they leave. Sometimes as many as five or six officers will follow one person to the store. Among those placed on house arrest were Pastor Wang Yi's 11-year-old son, Wang Shuya, and Wang Yi's eldest mother, elderly mother. Wang Shuya was reunited with his mother when she was released in June of 2019, but they're still on house arrest. The place where they're living is heavily guarded. Authorities seized the church's two sanctuaries, converting one of them into office space for community police. They seized the church's K-12 schools, seminary, and liberal arts college, confiscating everything inside, including students' personal computers, textbooks, and class notes. All of these spaces were legally rented or owned. They're doing this to Christian and Muslim populations. And how does the New York Times cover it? That children are being weaned off Islam. I'm sure the children are being weaned off Christianity. The American elite in this country, who are willing in their media outlets to run stories that man gives birth to child with female sperm donor, are not willing to speak clearly when it comes to matters of faith and matters of right and wrong, because it's complicated to them. It's complicated to them because while they accuse people of faith of believing in fairy tales like Noah's Ark, the reality is these people don't believe in anything anymore. And that's more deadly than believing the Bible. You know, as G.K. Chesterton said, if you don't believe in God, the trouble is not that you'll believe in nothing, but that you'll believe in everything. And we're seeing that in the press. While we're on the subject of, of Christians and churches and whatnot, can can we spend just a moment here on the issue of the church shooter in Texas? Did, did y'all see the—I well, I don't want to encourage you to see the video. I don't like watching 
videos like that. But nonetheless, uh, the the firearms instructor who happened to be uh, in the church and armed, it was less than six seconds uh, after the the shooter opened fire that he was himself was taken out by the firearms instructor. And you would think that the media and the Democrats would just kind of take a pass on arguing gun control when, in fact, it was a uh, well-armed, law-abiding citizen who took out the guy. The the death toll would have been much higher. I'm actually seeing a, a few Christians out there today saying, well, you know, I mean, I understand the impulse to defend yourself, but Jesus would have turned the other cheek and not shot the guy. Seriously? Wow. Um uh, Joe Biden, just a few months ago, was asked about Texas allowing guns in churches. And the second one is, is on the dealing with uh, firearms. It is irrational, with all due respect to the governor of Texas, irrational what they're doing. On the very day you see a mass shooting, I guess the numbers now, I was on a plane the last two and a half hours, they got up to five killed. Um, and we're talking about loosening access to uh, have guns, be able to take them into places of worship, store them in school. I mean, it's just absolutely irrational. It's totally irrational. Now, again, this is audio from Joe Biden back in August or September uh, it, during a, a prior shooting saying that it was irrational to talk about letting guns be in churches and schools. Actually, the Texas legislature passed a law saying that uh, it was up to the individual places of worship whether or not they wanted to allow guns in or not. And this particular church was willing to allow people to have guns in. In fact, the, the number of people in the church who stood up who were armed, uh, willing to draw, but they didn't. They exercised restraint and deferred to the one guy who was part of the church's uh, designated security team, and he handled the situation. And I, I got to say, I've got friends of mine who are very anti-gun, and were very vocal about this. And the only reason I can think that they were so vocal about it after this church shooting is because they don't want it to settle into the consciousness of people that it was good that there were law-abiding citizens who were armed. The strategy on the left is always we need to take guns away. We, we need to revoke guns. We need to, to stand down. We need to change something. I got to tell you, the, the genie's out of the bottle in this country when it comes to guns. We got 350 million Americans and there are 400 million guns in this country legally purchased. 350 million Americans, 400 million guns. There are more guns per person or there are more guns in this country than there are people. Not everybody owns a gun, uh, but some people own multiple. I, I don't I can't I've lost count of the number of guns my wife and I have. I just got a, a True Precision sent me a, a, a nice uh, Glock 43. I got to go get my concealed carry permit. I let my concealed carry permit expire last year. That's bad. Um, but, you know, a law-abiding citizen was able to take down a shooter. And the reaction from the left was that this was bad. This shouldn't have happened. We need to take people's guns away. Maybe we should have more armed people out there instead of less. We're not Australia. We, we can't confiscate guns. We've got a Second Amendment. We should be thinking about it differently in this country. So... <laughs> <laughs> Quick heart to heart with y'all. Uh, so we're we're now on uh, Vidalia, Valdosta, Macon. Um, I hate to name stations because because I don't want to for, forget any of them. Uh, Rome, Dalton, Jasper, Clarksville, Athens, Macon, 
Valdosta, Quitman, uh, Vidalia, and I apologize if I'm missing anybody. Uh, we just picked up Macon, and, and Macon is where I live. Uh, it's actually where I got my start in radio uh, by accident. A local guy uh, who was a local host got, got arrested. They needed somebody to fill in. It was me, and, and the rest is history. <laughs> but the downside I'm discovering now this morning, I was just telling Charlie uh, that I've had two vo- My phone rarely rings uh, in the morning. And I've had two phone calls this morning. They both left voicemails. During commercial break, I checked them, and it was two different people I know who were calling in to be on the show, and they called me instead. Uh, don't call my cell phone if you want to be on the program, and and I will mercilessly harass the two of you who did afterwards. If you would like to call the program and be on the program, it is 877-973-7425. Operators are standing by. <laughs> We need to talk about 2020. Uh, we are we're, we're less than a month away. Man, all the stuff that I needed to talk about, uh, and and we're we're getting to this now. Uh, the Democrats were a month away from the Iowa caucus. It's actually, I, I think it's February 3rd is the Iowa caucus, so a month and a day away. The media will, I guess, tomorrow when we're fully a month away, they're going to make a big deal out of it. I, I guarantee you, they're going to make a big deal out of it. And interestingly enough, uh, I still think Joe Biden is going to win. While Elizabeth Warren has captured the hearts and minds of the media, she is flailing about uh, with the public. In fact, there was a story out, I want to say on, on New Year's Eve, that if you notice when Elizabeth Warren does rallies now, all of the people who introduce her spend their time talking about Medicaid for all, And Elizabeth Warren ignores it. And the reason she's ignoring it is she has realized that it's hurting her and she's trying to reboot her campaign. Her fundraising is down. uh, Her polling is down and Biden hangs on to the lead. And you're you're having now um, uh, Buttigieg gaining some traction. He had a like $27 million raise in the last three months, which is actually really big. But Bernie Sanders leaves the pack. The problem for Joe Biden is that his fundraising is not doing as well as his polling. And there are a lot of people who think that will come back to, to haunt him. But thus far, it's not happening. Uh, he's, he's not being impacted. I want to, let's see, Democratic nomination, real clear politics average. Uh, Joe Biden right now is at a 9.2% lead in the real clear politics average, and it's a pretty stagnant, uh, let let me just give you the rundown here. Biden is at 28.3%. And again, this is the polling average. And and the reason I'd use the polling average is the polling average is a more accurate snapshot than individual polls. Individual polls can get it wrong, but if you take all the polls together and take the average of them, a rolling average, they tend to actually be pretty spot on uh, as they were, yes, in 2016. They were pretty spot on. Now, the Real Clear Politics polling average, 28.3% for Biden, 19.1% for Sanders, 15.1% for Warren, 8.3% for Buttigieg, 4.8% for Bloomberg, 35 for Klobuchar, 35 for Andrew Yang. Yang, by the way, has raised $17 million in the last quarter for, for an upstart candidate with no name. That is crazy good. Cory Booker's at 2.5%, Tulsi Gabbard at 1.8%, Tom Steyer 1.5%, uh, Julian Castro, who dropped out today, 1.2%, and then uh, Delaney and Bennett, who everybody forgets are even in the race, they are at 05 and 04 respectively. They will not be on the next debate stage. Let's just focus on the, these top five candidates. 
you got Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and, and Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg is spending millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to get his name ID up. He came out in favor of an open office plan the other day. Can I just tell you, as an aside, the open office is the worst idea of office management. Did you know one of the reasons it took Apple so long to build its spaceship complex in Cupertino. It, it's a perfectly round, it's a, it's a beautiful campus. I haven't been in it. I've been by there. It is beautiful. But one of the, the design ideas was to have these open office spaces. And the people who work at Apple rebelled. They refused to move into the building. And they had to go back through and, and add office space in the building because it turns out workers like to have their own offices. They, they do not like... Uh, the cubbyhole open office spaces. But Mike Bloomberg put out a picture the other day of his office space when he was uh, mayor of New York, and it was a big, open, sprawling space, and he sat with the team. He sat with the team. Bloomberg's with the team of people around him. And he said he's going to turn the East Room of the White House, which is a state reception room in the formal office of the White House, the formal building of the White House, the East Room, is a magnificent build, a magnificent space in the White House. They use it for concerts. They use it for press events. Uh, the, the East Room is, is an incredibly beautiful room. And Bloomberg says he's going to turn it into his office space. And he's going to be there with the team. He'll only use the Oval Office for formal receptions. This, my friends, is a man who does not understand what the presidency is all about. If Mike Bloomberg thinks that his big campaign platform is going to be an open office space in the East Room of the White House, he does not understand uh, what it is to be president, and that is disqualifying. And for those of you out there saying, well, it's been disqualifying and Donald Trump, too. I didn't support the man in 2016. But it's totally disqualifying for Bloomberg. But Bloomberg is spending his billions to try to get up in the polls, and it's not really working for him. And to the extent it's working for Bloomberg, who's it hurting? Well, you can see who it's hurting in the polling. Who has, who has seen declines in the polls? You know who really hasn't seen big declines? Joe Biden hasn't seen big declines. Joe Biden, when he got into the race, was at 28% of the Real Clear Politics polling average. And you know where Joe Biden is right now? He's at 28%. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders was at uh, 17%, and Bernie Sanders is now at 19%. Elizabeth Warren, though, she shot up. She got above Joe Biden one day in the Real Clear Politics polling average. Elizabeth Warren got to 26.6%. Joe Biden was at 26.4%. And this was heralded as massive news in the American media. Warren had gotten ahead of Biden in the Real Clear Politics polling average for the first time. It lasted a day, and she's gone downhill ever since. She is now at 15.1% in the Real Clear Politics polling average. Buttigieg shot up to 11.8%. He's now down to 8.3%. Meanwhile, Bloomberg is creeping up. He went from, entered the race at like 2%, and now he's up to 4.8%. I realize uh, that that seems somewhat esoteric. And you're having a hard time keeping track of the polling as I'm running through it with you. And you're wondering, what is the big deal here? What, what is Eric's point? Here's my point. Every major shakeup that comes now in the Democratic primary helps Joe Biden. Joe Biden has the undying support of black voters 
He has the support of the Democratic elite who are nervous about the far-left drift of their party. And whenever a new candidate comes into the race, they're not touching Biden. What they're doing is they're impacting people like Buttigieg. Buttigieg has gone full Beto now, which reminds me, the other day I got an email, I guess yesterday, looking for for PR uh, interviews. I had someone who they, they were willing to come on and explain furry subculture. Furry, that's right, uh, a, a press person reaching out to see if I wanted to have a guest on the program to explain furry subculture. Beto O'Rourke apparently has nothing better to do these days. He wants to come on my program. Furry subculture, that's a day that I will let Alan Sanders or Chris Burns fill in for me. So, uh, you know, Beto went with the whole America is a contemptible racist society and we still are and and we haven't changed. Well, Buttigieg just decided to go full Beto now. Similarly, the amendment process. They were wise enough to realize that they didn't have all the answers and that some things would change. Uh, A good example of this is something like slavery or civil rights. Uh, for It's a, an embarrassing thing to admit, but the people who wrote the Constitution did not understand that slavery was a bad thing and did not respect civil rights. Uh, and yet they created a framework uh, so that as the generations came to understand that that was important, they could write that into the Constitution too and ensure true equal protection for all of them. Uh, You know, that's not actually true. Uh, A number of our founding fathers and a number of the drafters of the Constitution were vehemently opposed to slavery. That's the entire reason we have the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution is the northern states refused to allow southern states to have slaves counted one-on-one, one-for-one, because they did not want southern slave powers to be dominant in Congress. Uh, They did not want them to shape the Electoral College. John Adams, who was not involved in the Constitutional Convention, had railed on slavery for years and in London as the ambassador to London was writing back to the Constitutional Convention to the drafters urging them to abolish slavery. I mean, Buttigieg is is, uh, completely ignorant in what he's saying here about the constitutional drafters and about the founding fathers, and yet this is what Beto O'Rourke did, essentially saying, oh, we're a terrible country and we're going to have to improve. The Democrats running on putting down the country, not quite smart. But then Joe Biden out there, of course, continues to be the gift that keeps on giving to the Trump campaign. Listen to Joe Biden talking the other day. I come from a family where, in an area where it's coal mining, Scranton. Anybody who can go down 300 to 3,000 feet in the mine sure and hell can learn how to program as well. But we don't think of it that way. Even my liberal friends don't. The president asked me to get Detroit out of its problems. Remember Detroit went bankrupt? And he gave me authority to do whatever I needed to do. So I set up with all the agencies. What is all the money out there Detroit could qualify for they didn't ask for? They didn't know how to get it. Didn't know how to get it. The end result was, not just because of me, but because of the the team I put together, Detroit got out of bankruptcy, started to come back. We were able to provide everything from street lighting for them that they didn't know they could have, and uh, to uh, 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 excuse me, inner city rail that because 60% of the people had jobs out of town, but only 60%, the people had jobs out of town where most of them are now, manufacturing jobs, didn't have vehicles to be able to get to work. So we put in a rail system. Anyway, make a long story short, things really started to move. And then we found out something interesting. Everybody, when things hit, went bankrupt, everybody who had any talent in terms of technology left. Black, white, Hispanic, man, women. We didn't have anybody, not a joke, who could turn on the streetlights. You hear me? Not a joke. No one who knew how to turn on the sewer system. 
Because wait, wait, it, wait, wait, wait. How, how do you turn on a sewer system? How how do you how do you? I, I thought it was a pipe into which stuff flowed. Requires computer capability and programming capability. And so we went out and hired this outfit that the major corporations hire and they need IT. They went out into the neighborhoods. They found 54, happened to be all women, not by intention, mostly women of color with a few exceptions, ages 24 to 20, yeah, 24 to 52 or 4. They went through a 19-week training program at the community college there, learning how to program. And I remember telling people this, and my liberal friends were saying, you can't expect them to be able to do that. Give me a break. Anybody who can throw coal into a furnace can learn how to program for god's sake okay so let me just first note that if joe biden were saying this on twitter that coal miners should learn to code he would probably be although i think the twitter rules you can only say that to reporters if you if you tell a reporter who loses his job to learn to code uh twitter considers that a hate crime because it impacts um weenie leftist reporters who get upset by telling them they should go do something else for a living other than then run democratic propaganda but joe biden going out essentially saying I mean, to be fair to him, to characterize him accurately, uh, that uh, coal miners are smart people, and if they can operate a coal mine, they can learn how to program a computer. I have to tell you, as someone who actually has a background in computer programming, not necessarily the case. But it's also somewhat demeaning, I think, to these people. What they're going to hear is Joe Biden wants them out of a job, and that's going to be problematic to them. You've got Elizabeth Warren who wants to take away their health care insurance, uh, Bernie Sanders who wants to destroy the American economy, Pete Buttigieg who it depends on the day of the week what he wants to do, and, and Joe Biden essentially telling coal miners learn to code. Meanwhile, uh, here's Steve Scalise with the president's contrasting message. Yeah, Sandra, the, this is great news for American workers. I mean, you look at the numbers, 268,000 jobs. The estimates were going to be maybe less than 200. So this is even better news than we were expecting, like you said, 49-year low in unemployment. And by the way, wages are up for hardworking families. And that's really, uh, you know, for, for those people that are trying to get into the middle class, become part of the American dream, that's the best news, that they now are seeing more money in their paychecks. So clearly the work that we did with President Trump to lower taxes and get regulations under control is paying huge dividends for American workers today. Tax cuts, wages, jobs, all of this, that's going to be the president's message. And the Democrats are going to tell uh, blue-collar workers they need to learn to program computers. We'll see how that goes. But wait, wait, wait. Democrats have a secret strategy that MSNBC is revealing the way they're going to win the election. It's something you couldn't have predicted. I'll tell you what it is when we come back. Not to be completely repetitious on that, but seriously, text the word ARMY to the number 33777. When the Georgia legislature convenes on the 13th, you will find out how useful that is to help you stay informed and connect to your member of the state legislature. Now, the Democrats, uh, apparently they got a master plan to win the election in 2020. Here's someone whose name I can't pronounce on MSNBC. Welcome back. Now to a powerful tool with potential to shake things up and move the needle against Donald Trump and the impeachment vice. First, the context. Here are Trump's job approval numbers from the start of his presidency. Until the month before the whistleblower complaint, Democrats, independents, and Republicans missions of guilt. By the way, likewise, China should start... 
Be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. Those bombshells led to Trump's impeachment, but you can see the polling numbers barely moving. Previously, Democrats had looked to the impeachment hearings to sway public opinion. Now there's talk the Senate trial could do the trick, and that might happen. But there's another tactic that has already succeeded in pressuring and even removing heads of state. In other countries, a tactic Trump's opponents aren't deploying yet, mass protests. That's right, friends. Mass protests. That's that's what they want to do. That that's their secret, tricky, tricky way to beat Donald Trump and drag him down. Mass protests. Do you know it, it, the parallels here with Great Britain are, are fascinating? Uh, there was a massive lament last week uh, among one of the socialist groups in Great Britain that they had mobilized millions of people to march in the streets against Boris Johnson. And they had uh, mobilized millions of people to sign petitions. And they had had hundreds of thousands of people contribute money to the effort to defeat Boris Johnson. They had mobilized democracy. That I guess I shouldn't say it was lament. That was actually their tweet. They had mobilized democracy. Except they lost. They lost. Uh, the mass protests did not work. Uh, it, it, they haven't worked in this country. I mean, for God's sake, you, you've got the Democrats out there doing mass protests against the president for running concentration camps along the southern border. and They're not even impeaching him for concentration camps. It's as if, if the Democratic leaders don't believe the protesters. And it, that largely is the problem here is the Democrats in this country have, they've traded religion for politics. So you and I might get up on a Christmas morning or go to a Christmas Eve service. We, we had a beautiful Christmas Eve service at our church in Macon uh, for Christmas Eve. And everybody's there. You do the candle lighting. You sing uh, Silent Night. If, if anything, it's gotten almost too programmed at this point. But it's a wonderful church service. And what is the corollary among secular atheists these days? They go to mass protests. They, they spend their time trying to argue with people at Christmas. And that's actually rather off-putting. But they also, that they, they spend their time in their secular rights protesting, and they don't actually show up and vote, or they do, and it turns out the public's not aligned with them. The New York Times, and we're going to have to spend time on this tomorrow, the New York Times has a deep dive on who Democratic voters are. And one of the interesting things is they point out that uh, Democrats on social media are far more likely to be rich white people who are far left than Democrats not on social media. If you're a Democrat who's not on social media, you tend to be more moderate to conservatively oriented. You tend to be more open to the pro-life cause. You tend to be uh, more likely to be black or Hispanic. You tend to be more likely to be middle class. And that's not translating into Democratic power right now. That's why Joe Biden's got to thread the needle carefully. The problem is, though, that if Joe Biden goes too far left to rally the progressives, he alienates himself from these other people. If he stays with those people, he alienates himself from the progressives, and it's the progressives who are vocal on social media who are shaping the media narrative. And then that is why the media narrative is not reflective of America as a whole. Hold that thought till tomorrow. Seriously, we'll get back to this tomorrow. It's a fascinating deep dive we need to do. Have a great rest of the day.